you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Um, We have two more weeks in this series uh, where we've been working through the Lord's Prayer. It's been called the well, trying to press back into uh, spiritual formation. And so this week we're closing up this conversation regarding forgiveness. And then next week we're going to be talking about God's leadership in our lives. I'm going to move this over here. It's interesting with all the stuff back here. It's like I don't feel like I got the same room that I have. I'm very nervous because there's water in my eyes. Last week I said I planned on being here. God was kind to allow me to be here. Glad that you guys are here. Um, And we're talking about forgiveness part two. I think it's helpful to start the conversation um, this way. On the back in school, um, some of you guys know that, um, back in school pursuing some doctoral work. um, And there's a level of excitement. And then there's some PTSD as well, if I could just keep it a stack. And as I've been thinking, particularly the last week, and then just, you know, I got like 3,000 pages worth of reading uh, due in a few weeks. Shout out to Brenna for helping me out. Um, But as I've been thinking, particularly this last week, do y'all know Cliff Notes? Have you ever heard of Cliff Notes? Um, so it still exists. All right, I thought I was dating myself, you know, like, like I aged like five years in this moment. Um, but, but essentially Cliff Notes, they take a book and they, they give you the Cliff Notes. They give you the highlights, the high points, the summary, um, so that you don't have to do the hard work of actually reading the book, right? And so most of y'all don't even use Cliff Notes. You just read the first few pages of chapter one, and then you read the last few pages of chapter one, and so forth and so forth, and you get like a summary. And then you try to take tests and write reports. Um, And then you try to enter into certain conversations around the book. And you know what I found through experience, but then also conversation with other people? You could use that method, and it's successful pretty regularly until you run into somebody who knows what they're you know, doing. Until you run into a professor that actually reads your, prep, your papers and then they're like, what is, what is this foolishness? Until you're into a conversation and then after about 15 minutes where you, you know, kind of go through your cliff notes and now you have to actually talk about the meat of the book, you're like, hmm, I just got found out, right? And the PTSD is because I'm, I'm staring at all this reading and I'm like, man, I wonder if there's some cliff notes for these books <laughs> to be done. God is protecting my integrity. But I thought about that, man, and I hate to be the guy who, you know, beats the dead horse. But, man, Christianity is just one of those things where you could do just enough to look the part, man. Where you could fool others. And sometimes it takes 18 years before anybody finds you out. And sometimes it takes 18 minutes in one real conversation for you to be found out. But what I've seen consistently in life history, professionally as a pastor, is that forgiveness really does find us out. Like when we're faced with moments where we have to make a conscious decision. Remember last week I said, like extending or receiving forgiveness, it is not the result of chance or coercion. It is always the product of a choice. When we are faced with these moments where we have to make a conscious decision to set someone else free, not just ourselves, but to set someone else free from a debt that they may owe us because they wronged us. When we are faced with those moments, 
How we respond really does tell the truth about what we believe about God. And this part of the text is tough because it now forces us not to explore dynamics of forgiveness vertically, like as it relates to God and us, but it forces us to explore dynamics of forgiveness horizontally as it relates to us and others. And that's a far different conversation. And some of us skip today. I got the text messages. Hey, man, I'm going to holler at you later. I'll catch the live stream. I'll catch the podcast. And I get it, man. And some of us drug ourselves in here today. And some of us are assuming you know where I'm going to go. All of us need to be confronted with Jesus' words regarding forgiveness found in this prayer. So what I hope to do is I just hope to preach in such a way where we're able to reframe and reinforce the weight of his words. They're commonly understood. It's not confusing. It's not like calculus two or organic chemistry, all right? It's pretty basic. One plus one equals two. They're commonly understood, but they're consistently undervalued. They don't carry the weight that they should. And so I hope to preach in such a way where we reframe and we reinforce the weight of Jesus' words and then give us some tools to actually move towards meaningful forgiveness in our lives, to move away from forgiveness as mere concepts that we could articulate to concrete decisive actions we take. So that's the flow of our time, like to reinforce what Jesus is saying, there's a weight here, and then give us some tools that reflect some decisive actions that we need to take in route to making and experiencing meaningful forgiveness. Let me read, and then we'll take it bit by bit, uh, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. It reads like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's get to work. I'm going to stick to this a lot, lest I get distracted. My God. You're going to feel, is he talking to me? Yes, I am. You're going to feel, wait, but let's talk about the person who's wronged me. That's actually not this sermon per se. What the scriptures do is something super unsettling. They seem to put the emphasis on the person who is wronged on actually pursuing forgiveness. They seem to make the person who has experienced deep offense now go on the offensive in the work of pursuing forgiveness. That's unsettling. 
it is much easier to just wait till you figure out that you messed up and wronged me and then you move towards me in reconciliation and restoration than for me to in my pain, in my offense, in all of the emotions that are inside my chest, to, to not be ruled by that and to take up an assertive posture and go pursue you to go make things right. And so it's going to feel like, man, he, like he is ignoring the pain that I feel. And I'm, I'm not ignoring any of that. I don't want to belittle anybody, my God. I don't want to belittle anybody who has experienced that level of pain, okay? That's not the goal. However, we cannot miss out on what Jesus is inviting people into with these, four, these two verses. He is inviting us to adopt a posture of a wounded healer. It's a concept Henry Nouwen created that is all throughout the text. It's this idea that someone has been wounded deeply, yet they are taking the assertive posture of pursuing healing. It's a wounded healer. Those that don't deny the pain, but they're not ruled by it, and they press towards something absolutely necessary, which is restoration of relationships. And so... There's an assertiveness I want to invite us into because that's the text Jesus is inviting us into. It's implied by the words, pray like this. And he says, as we've forgiven those also, I have taken up a posture of setting people free, releasing them from the debts that they owe me. Now to wait here, again, it's common sense but it's consistently undervalued. Read with me. At the end of this, he says, for if you forgive, he, he almost gives this clause. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. Now, verse 14 shouldn't be understood or seen as God being petty or God being manipulative. You didn't forgive them? Let's see how you like it. I won't forgive you. That's not how we should understand or read this text. That's petty. Petty wop. It shouldn't be seen as God being manipulative. Hey, I want to forgive you, but I need you to do these things, and then we could be square. That undermines the gospel. It undermines what we talked about last week, where God in his heart was prepared to forgive before our awareness of our wrong. Where God is not manipulated or twisted into extending grace, goodness, and mercy to anybody. And so God is not manipulating you, us into forgiveness by saying, well, I'm going to withhold this until you. Now, that's not the way it works. What he's doing is he's establishing a meaningful connection. He's not primarily trying to give a conditional clause. And a meaningful connection that he is establishing is common sense. It is all throughout the scriptures. If we're Christian, we've heard it before. It shouldn't be new to us. It is commonly understood. The meaningful connection that he is establishing is our relationship with God is inseparable from our relationship with others. 
It is a interdependent mystery, but it's reflective of the Trinity where yes, you get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jonathan almost said it offhandedly. We're asking God, Jesus. And it's mysterious that you have these three equal, unique, individual persons. Yet the way that they describe themselves is intertwined. It's, it's the mystery of union and community, that God exists in community. And we're made in his image, so we exist in community. So there is no category for anybody having a relationship with God that is true, that is not reflected in the relationship with other people. God doesn't allow us that space. This is 1 John. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God. And so there's these affections and these actions, affections in me and actions I take. I love God and I hate my brother and he hates his brother. So there's no affections and there's actions that are withheld and there are actions that are take, taken. If anybody says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. God removes the right and erases the space of us focusing our relationship with him without examining our relationship with others. It's an illusion. It's an attractive illusion. If you've ever watched Looney Tunes and you would always see Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck, they're wandering in the desert somewhere and then they see a mirage. And it's usually some sexualized creature, which is super weird, and then they move towards that creature. Then they start kissing this creature. Then it ends up being a cactus. And now they're poking their face. Like, oh, what happened? It's a mirage, right? The idea of, like, I could have a meaningful relationship with God and not really examine how it should work out in my relationship with other people, it's a mirage. It's an illusion. It does not exist. Divorcing our relationship with God from our relationship with others is an attractive illusion. And it is a symptom of a deceived and a sick heart. We don't have that space. Now, that's general. That's the weight here. Let's, let's, let's remember what he says. He's connecting the dots specifically to forgiveness. Ergo, a failure to forgive others actually reveals a failure to receive God's forgiveness for myself. It's not merely that I haven't understood it. It's that it hasn't taken hold of my heart. I haven't received it. That's what he means when he says, I will withhold forgiveness. It's because you actually haven't received it well. This presses into comfort with broken relationships. If you're comfortable with broken relationships in your life, you may not be a Christian. I'm gonna say that one more time so that we understand that I'm not playing game. If you are comfortable with broken relationships in your life, you may not actually be a Christian. Do you understand the weight of what he's saying here? He's saying examine where we are in relationship to God, whether we are people who will inherit eternity by the way that we forgive. If you are comfortable 
with broken relationships in your life, you may not know Jesus. Would God make us uncomfortable? I want to attach something to this and then move on to the tools because this is the weight here. This is not to create some weird category of forgiveness that I think often exists in Christian spaces, which is we make forgiveness synonymous with forgetting. That is not the way it works at all. Your history bears that out, okay? But there's, a, there's something beautiful here that we should just rest in and reach for when the memory that we have of people wronging us moves from the back of our mind and the back of our hearts to the front. You know what I'm talking about? When you see the person who you're beefing with, when you hear about the person that you're beefing with, particularly when it seems like they're doing well in their life, and you're like, how are you doing good the way you wronged me? This is trash, right? When the residue of all that they've done to you is tangible and the memory is thick. There's a practice we could reach for. I talked about it briefly last night, but, but it's so fascinating to me. You look at Lamentations chapter 3. You look at Philippians chapter 4. And there's this consistent practice of calling something to mind. Where, 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 where the wrongs people have done to us, they resurface. God invites us to call to mind not merely their wrongs, not merely their guilt. He invites us to call to mind his grace because he invites us to call to mind the weight and beauty of the gospel. Here's the weight and beauty of the gospel. It's, it's found in Romans 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, active in our disobedience, and our offense, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The good news of the gospel is that we didn't have to earn God's favor. It is that we didn't have to have this amazing awareness of how much we messed up for God to move towards us with restoration in his eyes and in his heart. Is that real for you, Christian? Do you actually believe that? Is, that? is that actually your story? Or is that a fable that we tell to get people in a room and get money so that we could do good stuff in a city? What? Two times this 
like it popped in my heart. The first time was the birth of um, my oldest daughter, Serenity. And so I remember, yo, like we locked eyes. Um, we locked eyes. All babies are born ugly in case there's confusion. Um, they got like amniotic fluid on them. Their head is like shaped like a cone. I was like, put a hat on her. But, so all, ba- all babies are, are, are born ugly. But we locked, if you're a parent, you know I'm not lying. It's just, and so, but we locked eyes, right? And as we locked eyes, like I, like I became a time traveler, yo. Like I mean, on some Marty McFly, Back to the Future. Like I went, I went to her first words, I went to the first time that she failed and then she would look to me and say, I went to her first kiss and how I would have to like pretend to be excited and paying attention instead of plotting how I'm gonna kill somebody. Like I went to that moment very vividly. I went to the dance at the wedding, I went there. And, and, and you could ask my wife, I am not exaggerating. I just started mumbling. And I was like, nah, it wouldn't be me though. That's, that just started coming out of me. Because cause, cause right there and then, in, <laughs> right then and there, July 20th, 2010, I'm like, there is no way that I would let her die for people I don't even like. And I had a list. I had a list. I'm dead serious. And I was like, but this is, the, this, is the, this is the gospel, that the father watched Jesus, was with him from eternity, watched him enter into our world and take his first breaths, gasping in a manger, cone-headed Jesus, right? Watched him be in a temple. We're getting ready to go to Luke. Watch him be in a temple saying, I should be about my father's business. Watched him be washed with water, baptized, booming from heaven. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Watch the miracles. Watch all of that. Knowing a cross was, couldn't be me though. But that's what God did in the gospel. And I was undone. I was undone there. Been walking with Jesus, but in that moment I was just, oh, thank you for pulling me deeper. Second time, it happened as some of you guys know my story. Second time it happened um, was in 2011. So um, this week we cele- celebrated, <laughs> such a terrible choice of words. <laughs> we commemorated 11 years since my little brother was murdered at 21. And I preached his funeral, top five things, most difficult things I've ever done in my life, hands down. And I got off from the stage and I sat down next to my wife. She's, she's putting her arms around me. She's like, you know, proud of you, all that stuff. I can't really hear what she's saying. Um, future stolen over foolishness, all right? And my dad gets up. And my dad, he gets up. Like, so this is my little brother's casket, like right here. My dad is right here. I'm sitting right there and my dad gets up and he just starts weeping. He just starts weeping. And my, my dad is, he's a stocky, short African man, you know. 
I've never seen him cry before in my life. And he's weeping and he's like, man, I'm just so sorry. I wish I would have done better by you. And he's apologizing. And I'm like, and so I'm, you know, I'm weeping all the more now. But as the tears just start like flowing, I'm, I'm just like wiping my eyes. And the spirit of God is good. He doesn't have to do stuff, but he does it because he's kind. He just kind of pierces through all of the pain. And he's like, catch this, Moochie. And it, and it was the gospel. If I understand the gospel right, I understand what we just read in Romans 5. While we were sinners, okay? That means the blood of crucifying Christ is still on our hands. That means the insults that we hurl towards God in our disbelief is still on our lips. While we are sinners, okay? Christ died for us. But the death of Christ was not merely to save us from hell. It was to bring us closer to God. Ergo, what God does in the gospel is that he treats us like Jesus. He sees us as sons and daughters, and then he treats us as such while we are sinners. Okay. And so I'm, I'm staring, and God pierces all of that back, and it's, it's like the gospel is literally my dad stepping over my little brother's body, going to these three murderers and washing them and clothing them with my little brother's clothes and bringing them into his house and allowing them to sleep in the bed of the one who they stole and feeding them. Wouldn't be me, though. That ain't me. That ain't me on my best day. No way. But that's the gospel. That is the grace of God. That is the pathway towards forgiveness. And so, when the, when the, when the memories of the people who have wronged us come to mind, we have to reach for that. When I call others' offenses to mind, can I, will I call the grace of God to mind as well? If I cannot, I haven't understood the depths of my sin and I haven't understood the depths of God's love and grace. Let's move on. I'm not a gardener. Um, my second child is. She's a, she's, she's a beast. But I know, I know it's hard for certain things to grow depending on the soil. I know enough to know that. That you could have good seeds and bad soil and you may get fruit. You may not. And if you get fruit, probably not going to be easy. And so everything that I said, it's good. It's the Bible. It's the Bible, but I know the soil of our hearts are still like, yeah, but, and I get it. So the tools that we're starting to move towards, decisive actions that we're taking, the first geographical location of the actions that we're taking is inward. It's to allow God to do some stuff in our hearts and really till the soil, the ground of our lives before we even move a step towards anybody else. Fair game? Let's work through it, and then we'll be done. The first decisive action, let God have our hearts. 
Now, you can insert you in there. I don't want to be, but it's really let God have your heart, okay? Um, this is the entirety of the scriptures. It's, 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 it's Colossians chapter 3, put on then, and then he gives this, this beautiful expression of what it means to be a Christian, and he starts talking about the attitudes of the heart and being free from bitterness and, and sadness and resentment and all of the things that create bad soil where unforgiveness could take root. Now, that grows in bad soil. And it's let God have your heart. And, 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 and I don't mean that in that weird, like, you know, overtly romantic, poetic, oh, they have me. I'm sprung. Like, yes, there's an affectional dynamic. Like, let God have your affections. Would he be our treasures? But when, it's, when I say let have God have your heart, and when the scriptures say that God should have our hearts, they're not merely talking about our affections. They're talking about this idea of letting God be the authority that he has us, he owns us, and he occupies the primary space of Lord. He has authority and rule over us. That's what it means that God has our hearts. Not merely affections, but he becomes the authority. Now, there's a conversation, ongoing conversation on authority that has been happening for some time now. It's really been turned up in the last seven years, and now we are in a path where we reject all forms of authority. What I would submit to us is that our primary issues with authority aren't actually arbitrary, nor are they merely intellectual. Our primary issues with authority are relational and experiential. We have a thing in our house. Whoever is driving, they get to change the radio station. If you are driving the car, you get to control the music. Now at first, that was dicey. Because I like music, and I like my wife, and she's the only one who could drive. But our playlists don't always match. You follow me? But there was moments where it was like, oh, this, this is actually a blessing. We jam into the same stuff. And there was moments where we weren't jamming to the same stuff. And those road trips were long. But you know what happened? I started to learn more about her by listening to her playlist. And then I started to surf. I served by understanding who she was, and I started to actually enjoy who she was. Relational and experiential. If we move ourselves away from the authority of God, it's because we have a bad picture of it. When God says, I am the overarching ruler of your life, and he invites us to step under that umbrella of safety, it's for our good. This is Psalm 16. You make known to me the paths of life. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. Like that when I walk in your paths, when I let you be the authority of my life, goodness actually follows me. And I have to learn to regularly put myself under God's authority, which is chiefly expressed through God's words. Let God have our hearts means not just the affections, but our, our authority. Furthermore, it means that he is the primary guide. He sets the course. I get out of the driver's seat of my life. I step into the passenger seat and I say, God, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Are you sure you want to take that route? Would it be me? But I'm letting you be the ruler. I have deep affections for you. So let's go. We'll figure this thing out. Make sense? Let God have our hearts. If I want to extend meaningful forgiveness to others, I must allow God to soften, strengthen, and shape my heart. Ergo, he must have me. 
He must have me. Moving on. Two more, and then we'll close. Not only do we have to let God have our hearts, we have to let God strengthen our eyes. Uh, Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Like to focus on the back half, that it's really glorious when you are kind-hearted and you're overlooking an offense, and we missed the first part. Good sense makes one slow to anger. In other words, they are seeing things differently. Sense there is, is reason and rationale. It's perspective. It is how you are understanding what is going on, ergo how you are seeing. Make sense? And so if, I, if, if my eyes are, are, are shaped by, by God's perspective and I allow him to strengthen his perspective in my life, my heart is moved, the soil isn't as difficult, and I'm able to take steps towards forgiveness. All throughout the scriptures, there is story, example of people who aren't seeing things through God's eyes and the effect in their life. Genesis 29 through 30, read it on your own time, super fascinating. It is a summation of this idea of when people are big and God is small. And so you are looking at life through the lens of people and not through the lens of God. And what, how those people are interacting with themselves, the relationships, super fascinating. But for time's sake, we'll move on. Seeing through God's eyes and letting him strengthen our eyes so that we see through his eyes involves seeing the voids in people, seeing the voids in our own hearts. It also involves seeing people as victims and not merely violators. That we see people as victims of sin and not just violators of me. There's an entire spiritual complex that overlays the world that we live in. Have you ever, maybe you have Big Mama, they had the leather sofa and they had like saran wrap on it. It was weird. And you sat on it, you sunk into it and it was sticky. If you're in Houston, it was humid. Why? But the saran wrap was like, it's like this thin, like over the sail. So you, you see the sofa, but there's this saran wrap over it. There's this entire spiritual world over us. That's how Ephesians 6 talks. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and princes and rulers and authorities. We have a real enemy. Later in this petition, Jesus is going to say, deliver us from evil or the evil one. He's then going to model this when he is tempted by Satan and what deliverance looks like. But we have a real enemy. Jesus En route to the cross, Last Supper, stares at the ones he loves, Peter specifically, and he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to affect your life so much so to where there's no weight to you. He wants to destroy you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to this church arrogant church, a lot of sin issues. There's beauty there too. And he talks about forgiveness. Second Corinthians 10, he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also will forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we might not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
One of Satan's schemes is to cultivate unforgiveness in the lives of people. And the way he does that is by using people to hurt other people. It's hard. But when I start to see people as not merely violators, but victims, there's something else at work in them, it actually softens me a little bit. Now, that's not to remove them of agency or responsibility, but it is to take a different perspective of what's going on in their lives. Maybe sin is at work in them in ways that I can't even imagine. And so rather than keeping them a prisoner of my pain, I need to present them to the Lord in prayer. God, work in them. That makes sense. Let God strengthen our eyes. Last one, and then I'm going to give us an acronym. It's not just let God have our hearts. It's not just let God strengthen our eyes. It's let God have our story. This is Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, if you're familiar with Joseph's story, he was betrayed. He was betrayed. Joseph said to them, to his betrayers, <laughs> do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Beautiful perspective to understand who God is and who we are. Am I in God's place where I could withhold forgiveness from you? Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's evaluating his story through God's hand. Evaluate our stories through God. That's what it means to let him have our story. But it's not merely looking at the past and saying, oh, this is what God may or may not have been doing. But it's also looking at the present and saying, God, what might you want to do in this moment? And it's looking to the future and believing that God could bring something beautiful from whatever is going on. Some of us have unforgiveness because we believe resurrection and new life in the relationship is no longer possible. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We know it's a lie from the pit of hell because we have a cross and an empty tomb. A cross that says offense is real and has real consequence, death. Relationships have died because of sin. We talked about that last week. But then we have an empty tomb that says resurrection power. The future is written by the blood of Christ, not the sin of other people. That is the gospel. That is the Bible. That is the word from high. It is why Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Abel's word, condemnation, vengeance. Jesus' word, forgiveness, future, resurrection, love. It's better. And so we look at our relationships and where the pain points are and where unforgiveness is actually still there. And we say, God, it seems like this is dead. But maybe, maybe if there's some soil work happening in me, I'm seeing people as victims of sin and not merely violators for me. So now I'm more merciful and I'm praying for them. Maybe resurrection is possible. And then I grab on some scriptures that I've heard that might be cliches but I need them to become concrete and tangible where Jesus says, yeah, with me, anything's possible. So I'm gonna take Jesus's words and I'm gonna overlay them on this relationship and I'm gonna say, God, I'm believing in the possibility of restoration. Some of us need to go do that now, now. 
now. Nothing kills a church like unforgiveness. And y'all are beefing with folk and cool with it. What? That's wild to me. First, because I'm from the hood. So if I'm not cool with you, you're going to know that I'm not cool with you. Second, because of Christianity. These are brothers and sisters, Christian. Brothers and sisters, the same blood of Christ that washed you, washes them. How dare we hold them to a standard God hasn't held us to? Forgiveness. Resurrection power. There's a tool we usually give to people we're doing counseling with because you got to make a plan. You can't just go like, oh, I'm charged up. I don't really believe it, but I'm going to try. Mm, that don't work. Make a plan. That's what Matthew 18 exists for. Take the offensive, the assertive posture as a wounded healer, and there's a plan. You go approach the person, but then you bring somebody else in if it doesn't work, and then you bring an entire group of people in if it still doesn't work, and then you say, God, I've done something. I've, I've tried to pursue the path of peace, and I'm at my wit's end. Now it's on you. I need divine intervention. I need you to settle the debts in a way that my efforts aren't. That's not where some of us are. We skip to the end, and we haven't done the process. Make a plan and work the plan. And here's the acronym I give to you as the worship team comes up. Here's the acronym I would give to you to help you in the plan. It's called DIE. It's called DIE. For restoration to be possible and forgiveness to be extended, someone has to die. Now, That is the nature of the gospel. Jesus died. He died and he made all this possible. But here's the acronym. The D is this, drain the emotion. Drain the emotion. As difficult as that may be, drain the emotion. Emotions have a way of magnifying. And you know what I mean, where it's like you feel it more than it actually is. And then you minimize some other stuff, drain the emotion. And I'm saying be emotionless. It's put emotion in its right place. Drain the emotion. You're in conflict with people right now, drain the emotion. The second is I. Identify the win. What is the win that you're after? Y'all can come up. What is the win that you're after? If the win isn't what God has just given us, which is this horizontal forgiveness being extended that reflects a vertical forgiveness that we have received, it ain't worth it. Identify the win. Maybe the win isn't that we're gonna be brought back together and it's gonna be all copacetic and raindrops and roses and whiskers on kittens. Maybe we're not gonna be able to be in the same room for some time. Maybe it's going to take a few years, but identify the win. Drain the emotion, identify the win, and then E, engage well. Actually pursue restoration, which means going to them if you've been wronged and being honest. Hey, man, this hurt me. This hurt me. Confronting confronting with humility 
not arrogance. You hurt me. That don't work. Man, this hurt. And here's why it hurt. And here's what it's doing in me. Engage well. Confront. Here's what it's doing in me, but here's what God has been doing in me as well. And here's what I'm hoping God would do in this situation. But in order for God to do that in this situation, here's some things that I think need to happen. We need to have some hard conversations. We probably need to bring some people in. And I need some space. I may not be able to talk to you right now, but if you give me some time, I'll re-engage. Engage well. Die. But when we die, that's where life is found. If there's people that you are thinking about right now, there's unforgiveness that you know is just buried in there and God is bringing it to the surface through the course of our conversation last week and this week, don't wait. Make the plan now and actually settle the debts. If you need to come talk to a pastor and say, man, I, like, I'm feeling this, I want this, but I need some help, that's what we're here for. Don't wait. Please pray with me, Father. This petition is tough, but it's true. And I envision a community that is not only excelling as peacemakers, but is quick to actually seek out those who are hurting and challenge them to heal. that we would take responsibility for each other's life and health and vitality by being honest with one another. Fam, y'all are beefing. Let's have a convo. And not being comfortable with synthetic peace. And not being comfortable with I'll get to it when I get to it. I'll get to it when I'm ready. Oh no, oh Lord. Don't let us be fooled by that lie. But would we take on the truth that that forgiveness is a beautiful thing that we can experience first and foremost with you. And as we experience it truly and deeply, we're able to then give it. Would you burn Matthew 6.14 into our hearts? Please. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.